You guys happy to be here? Yeah? Sounds like it, yeah. <laughs> like, woohoo, yay. It's not like it's 8 o'clock in the morning, it's 10 o'clock, man. <laughs> Having a good weekend? It feels like fall outside. I love fall, it's kind of my favorite season. I love the, uh, the leaves turning and a little chill in the air at night and fire pits and good stuff like that, football season. Um, so we're going to wrap up our series about identity today, and, and hopefully you've, you've been able to, to be here for the previous three, but basically we're going to kind of, what James talked about, hopefully get to that place where we realize that, hey, we are actually way more than what other people think of us, and that there's a person who has a view of us that supersedes anybody else's view, and that's the one that matters. And so before we get in there, if you guys don't mind, just stand up with me. We're gonna look at Matthew 4, verses eight through 11, and we'll, we'll read those out loud this morning, and, and then I'll pray, and we'll, we'll dive right in. And so this is the conclusion of the temptation of Jesus by Satan in the wilderness. And so up through, uh, this is the last temptation. So the first two temptations we've already talked about. This is the third one Satan comes to Jesus with. We're gonna read these verses now. Again, the devil took him along to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, go away, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to serve him. Father, we just, we just come to you now and ask that, that you would be with us, that you would open our eyes and our hearts and our minds to your truth, that whatever is fully, fully your truth would settle deep within us and and our hearts would be good soil to receive that, and whatever's not would just be trampled underfoot and fall by the wayside. And so God, we ask that you bless us, that you pour your, your truth into us, and that it becomes a source that we can live out of for this next week, in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, you can have a seat. So I need to tell you guys something. I have a tendency to want what I want when I want it. So those of you that are laughing can identify with that. Those of you that aren't laughing are looking at the rest of us like we're heathens. And I don't know exactly where that tendency comes from, but I have some suspicions. Number one, I'm the youngest of five kids. Who's the youngest in the family here? So we always get what we want when we want it, right? I mean, it's just the way it works. Youngest of five, I get what I want. So that's a factor. The other, the other factor, if you're familiar with the Enneagram, I'm a seven on the Enneagram, which basically means that... Um, I like to avoid pain and have fun. Waiting is painful, and it's not fun. So that's part of it too. But here's the problem. When I want something, I start to view others as a way to get it. I, I become focused on what others think of me because that actually can help me serve my self-interest. So if I want something and I believe that, that you can help me get it, then I'll become over-focused on you and what you think of me in hopes that you'll help me get what I want. And I've also, I'm also, and this sounds like bragging and I'm not, but, but I'm also a pretty good motivator of people. I've coached sports, I've, I've um, been involved with teams and, and I'm a pretty good motivator of people and I can usually get people to do what I want. Now some of you are thinking that's manipulation. That's not, that's motivation. I'll clarify that for you. Motivation is when I get you to do what I want you to do. Manipulation is when you get me to do what you want me to do. 
there's a big difference there. So understand, I am a motivator. I am not a manipulator. And so what happens is this. I decide if I can steer and to some degree control how you think of me, you'll react and interact with me in the way that I want that serves my purpose. And this leads to actually me being controlled and driven by what you think. More importantly, what I think you think. Do you see what happens there? We get caught in this trap where we're, we think we're having others move in a direction we want them to move because it serves our purpose. But in reality, we're becoming slaves to our perception of your perception of me. Because I can never truly know what you think of me. So I guess. And then I start moving in all these different ways. And here's where that mentality leads. This is the danger of it. Because we become frustrated, exhausted, burned out, resentful, bitter, and angry when we fall into that cycle. And so here's the cycle. I wanna be seen as valued and worthy. I wanna be esteemed. I wanna have respect. I wanna be regarded. I wanna have a measure of glory in your eyes. And it feels bad when I don't have that. And so I try to find it and I try to find it quickly. Because I just want the pain to be alleviated. I don't want to feel this way. And so I get on that treadmill of people pleasing to try to shape the perception of others in hopes that they'll see me with some measure of esteem and glory. We get stuck on that treadmill and here's what the problem is. Even if you start to see me that way, it's fleeting. You know why? Because everybody else is doing the same thing. You don't have time to give me the esteem and the glory over the long term that I want. Because in a moment, you're gonna start seeking it again for yourself. And so what happens is this. We all become frustrated we get exhausted, we get burned out, we get resentful, we get bitter, we get angry because the things that I'm doing to try to get you to see me a certain way don't bring any lasting results. Because sooner or later, even if you give me a taste of it, you have to go back to serving you. And that's the problem. In short, we want the esteem and notice from everybody, but we want it right now. And so here's what happens, we forget God's truth. Listen to this from Colossians 3, verse 4. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. There's two big words there, when and then. And so here's what happens. We say when, well now. Then, nope, I want it today. And that's the temptation that we fall into. But we will be revealed with him in glory. Think about what that means. It means that glory is already there for us in Christ. It's just not here yet. And so we get on that treadmill of trying to get it here now, the way I want. Instead of going, no, you know what, God, you've promised that. It's on the horizon, it will be there, and it will be there because I'm in Christ, but I don't want it because I'm in Christ, I want it because I'm in me, because I need all of you to look at me and go, wow, you're wonderful. Let's try that real quick, I'm teasing. <laughs> I'm teasing. I told you I was a good motivator, some of you started to speak. 
And so here's what Satan did. Satan tried to get Jesus to walk right into that cycle of satisfying his need to be seen as he truly is, the same thing that God promised us in Colossians 3, as we truly are, how are we truly? We're truly glorious in Christ. I want to be seen that way. When? Now. So Satan did the same thing to Jesus. Jesus is truly glorious, and he comes up and he says, but, 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 but don't you want to be seen as truly glorious now and through the perceptions of others? And so he says, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Now here's the thing. Kingdoms are made up of people. Glory is offered by people. He tried to invite Jesus into saying, forget what is, take what's here, and it's yours right now. The same cycle we get in. Forget what is, when Christ who is my life is revealed, I will be revealed with him in glory. And take what's here, you, look at me, and let me do what I need to do to make you make me feel better about me. And he resisted the temptation because it's a temptation of immediacy and perception. And he resisted those two temptations by staying in reality. And this is the reality that Jesus knew. There's none worthy of praise and service but God. Therefore, there is none whose esteem we should seek but God's. So if there's no one worthy of praise and glory but God, then why do I need to seek esteem from anyone else? Because you don't know what praise and glory actually is. I don't know. So whatever I offer you is less than. Whatever you offer me is less than. So why would that become the focus of my life? And see, there's a strategy of scripture reading that can pull us back from seeking to find ourselves in the perceptions of others when we feel a sense of disregard or of not having value. And I think it's helpful because it pulls us back to focus on God and what he is doing in us. And it's a strategy that I use often. I'm gonna share it with you this morning. And it's really simple. It just involves searching myself out when I read in the context of scripture. Searching myself in the context of scripture. And it simply comes down to four basic questions. The first question, when I read the verses, what's the longing that these verses awaken in me? Second question, how do I avoid or deny that longing? Third question, how does Jesus resolve that longing? And the fourth one is, how can I participate with Jesus in resolving this longing in the world? And see, I believe that there's times when we should approach scripture with the expectation that it will do something in us rather than that we will do something with it. Let me say that again. There's times where we have to approach scripture with the expectation that it will do something in us rather than we will do something with it. I think that's what's going on in Hebrews 4.12. Listen to this verse in Hebrews 4. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, even penetrating as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Now, how do I know when I need to take this approach to reading scripture? Well, simply put, when I read it, 
and feel some longing that doesn't seem to line up with the full truth that scripture speaks, then I know I need to go to these four questions. When it points me towards others to satisfy my longings instead of God, I think what happens is that verse in Hebrews 4.12 is actually coming alive in that moment and saying, hey, there's some division that needs to take place in you. This sword needs to do its work. It needs to trim away. It needs to cut. There are times that scripture seems to judge our thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. And to be moving towards wellness and growth in Christ, we need to pay attention to those times. We can't just skip over it because it doesn't make us feel good. Those moments that scripture penetrates us deeply and divides our soul and our spirit, we need to embrace. Wellness and growth in Christ simply means that I find what makes me whole and grows me in his perception of me, not anybody else's. That's what it means to be well and growing in Christ. And so I wanna, to, to press into this deeply, I wanna speak just for a moment to the idea of soul and spirit so that you have some understanding. And, and we don't have time to go all the way into that, so I'm not gonna press into it too deeply, but I wanna give you just kind of an operational definition of those two terms. So the soul is the part of me that integrates and aligns every dimension of what it means to be human toward a purpose. So you've heard somebody say, I had this soul longing to go into this career or to become a doctor or a lawyer. And that's what happens. The soul is that thing that says, hey, this is where you wanna go and I'm gonna push everything in that direction. So here's the deal. Once my soul is redeemed in Christ, then the overarching purpose becomes to align every facet of my life with Christ. The redeemed soul says, I'm gonna take everything that is you, every thought, every belief, every idea, every action, every desire, and I'm gonna align it with the purposes of following Christ. It's not an instantaneous or perfect aligning. It's a halting and sporadic aligning that won't be fully accomplished until we're in eternity. So if you feel like, well, that's what I want, but there's a lot of times I don't feel aligned. Well, yeah, you're like the rest of us. We want it and we seek it, but it's not a linear movement. <laughs> It goes forward and back and up and down and all over the place. Now here's what the spirit is. The spirit is the part of me that wills and desires, that wants anything. My spirit is the thing in me that says I want, whatever it is. I want chocolate cake. I want a new car. I want a puppy. That's what our spirit is. Our spirit says this is the thing. And it wants what it wants in the moment. So the task of growing in Christ's likeness sort of becomes a process of allowing my redeemed soul to draw my easily distracted spirit directly toward alignment with Christ. So my redeemed soul is telling my spirit, align with me. And that, that's an overly simplistic and completely inadequate explanation of what the soul and the spirit is, but um, for our purposes today, it's gonna serve a need. So there are times when we read scripture that it penetrates us deeply, as Hebrews 4 says, reveals the division between my redeemed soul and my spirit. The part of those of, of us that are sealed in Christ that wants everything about us aligned with the purposes of Christ and for us is that soul, 
And my spirit is the part of me that gets distracted by what author Rebecca DeYoung calls glittering vices. Those things that flash in front of our eyes and we go, man, that would be nice. I'd like to have that. Maybe just a little bit. Let me have a taste. And then our soul steps in and goes, no, that doesn't serve the overarching purpose, which is to live in Christ. This is the place of the soul and the spirit having competing longings. That's what the author of Hebrews 4 is talking about. When the word of God, the sword, the sharper than any two-edged sword, splits soul and spirit, what it does is it takes truth and lays it before us and puts our spirit on one side and our soul on the other and says, look at these two things. This soul wants what Christ wants, but here are the things in your spirit that don't. Here are the things in your spirit that say, hey, you want what the world wants. And so there's an exercise, an experience that every one of us has had, and it's that place of feeling double-minded, right? Where I want this, but I'm doing that. It's what Paul talks about in Romans 7. I don't do the very thing I want to do, and I do the very thing I don't want to do. He's talking about the division in his soul and his spirit. Now, if you remember in Romans 7, what he says is, I don't know that division. I wouldn't know that division were it not for the law of God. So that's what Romans 7 is trying to explain to us, that when the law came, the law came as that double-edged, sharp sword that split the human soul and spirit because all of a sudden, we could see this longing in our soul, but we could also feel this longing in our spirit. And so Paul gets into that cycle of Romans 7 where he's just spinning around. And we read it and we go, yeah, this guy's kind of messed up. I don't feel that way. I don't think that way. But the reality is we do if we'd stop and look deep enough within ourselves. And so I would propose that we find ourselves in this Hebrew 412 space over some passage. And when we do find ourselves there, then we go to these four questions. So the first question, what is the longing that these verses awaken in me? Well, for me, it was a struggle between being seen by God as I am and being seen by others as I want to be seen. That was the invitation that Satan offered Jesus. You can be seen as you are, or you can be seen as you might want to be seen. See, because Satan thought that Jesus, too, could be enticed by the conflict of desire and would seek to be esteemed immediately by people instead of God. In essence, what Satan did was he thought that Jesus would react the way we react. We would say, no, I want it now. And I want others to see me this way now. But here's what Satan didn't calculate. He didn't calculate that Jesus, right before he went in the wilderness, had this pronouncement of God, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And Jesus clung to that better than we cling to that. He was hanging on to it so deeply that, that he wasn't gonna let it go. And so the invitation was to forget that God was well pleased in him and invite him to find esteem from people. He held on to it tightly. You ever feel that invitation? You ever feel that invitation of the world or others saying, hey, just forget that God's well pleased in you and make me well pleased in you. And when you get on that treadmill, Listen to this in Isaiah 9, 7. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. 
So Jesus knew that what Satan was offering was already offered by God. It just wasn't going to come now. It was going to come then. But it would happen, and it would happen in God's way and in God's timing. What I'm telling you this morning is that truth is, sa- is the same for us. What the world is offering us, we've already been promised by God. It's just not coming in our timing. And so we need to learn to be patient, to say, I'm gonna stand in the reality of I am your beloved child, and in me, you're well-pleased. You see that Satan offered Jesus nothing that wasn't already going to be his. He just offered it immediately and he offered it through the power of the perception of others. And so that verse awakened that longing in me and it steers me to the truth that will satisfy that longing in God and not in others. And so that's the first question. What's the longing that comes up in me? Well, this longing that's natural to all of us to be in our state, our permanent state now which is a state of glory in Christ. Here's the second question. How do I avoid or deny that longing? Now, this is the one that most of us don't wanna go to because we're really good at denial. We're so good at denial, we can deny our denial. But to find true wellness and growth in Jesus, we have to get real with ourselves. We just have to. To avoid or deny any of those longings that come up simply puts me in a place of ignoring what is true. There's a psychological term for that. It's called delusion. When we deny reality to live into what we want it to be, there's really no difference than the person who is delusional. Psychologically, medically. We can't go to that place. We have to stay in truth. And so what we do is we deny those places where we know we need to be made well and we need to grow. Listen to this, Psalm 139, 23 and 24. These are two of my favorite verses in the Bible and I pray through these so often. And so I wanna invite you to do that. When When you're asking yourself, how do I avoid or deny this longing that's come up for me? Listen to these verses. Search me, God, and know my heart. Put me to the test and know my anxious thoughts and see if there's any hurtful way in me and lead me in the way that's everlasting. Breaking out of avoidance and denial comes when we humble ourselves before God and let God speak our identity to us as we've been doing these last few weeks, hopefully, and it shows us the obstacles to living out of that identity. That's what that second question's about. How do I avoid or deny this longing? Well, those obstacles are how I avoid and deny it. I tell myself those things aren't true. The only one who can answer that second question, how do I avoid or deny these longings, is God himself, not me. If you've ever gone on a silent retreat and you're like me, one of the first things I learned on a silent retreat was that the, bigger, the biggest liar I know finally shuts up. And I stop lying to myself. And I stop all that self-talk of telling me all the ways I'm okay. And I start looking at the ways that I'm not okay. And that sounds really scary, doesn't it? To sit in a space of looking at yourself and going, oh my gosh, look at all these things that are in me that are not okay. And once you do that, here's what happens. Once you do that, you go to that place where you go, I am not okay, and here's all the evidence. What happens is Jesus himself steps into that place where you're not okay, and he goes, but it's okay. And so I look at him and I go, I'm not okay. And he goes, yes, you're right, you're not, but it's okay. 
I have it. I can handle it. I've got it. I am redeeming you. I am remaking you. And all these things that are not okay in you are okay because I can handle it. They're not gonna stay. I'm not gonna leave them in place, but they're also not yours to worry about. I will do what I will do with you in my time, not yours. Jesus knew that. And that's why he was able to resist this temptation. Here's the third question. How does Jesus resolve this longing? I'm gonna tell you how he resolves this longing. Listen to Colossians 1, 15 and 17. So that longing to be esteemed by others, to be regarded by others, is satisfied in this, in Colossians 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. And so when you go to Colossians 1, maybe this afternoon, you're like, hey, I wanna read that myself because I don't trust his translation or whatever it is. Go to Colossians 1, you read verses 15 through 20, what you're gonna find is kind of Jesus' divine resume. It's what Paul's giving there. He's going, this is why Jesus is trustworthy. And so he's giving his divine resume. And so verse 17 is part of that resume that says that all that exists, exists because he wants it to be so. So he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Furthermore, all that exists in this moment exists because he is actively willing it to be in this very moment. He's holding it together right now. Now, back to the question, how does Jesus resolve this longing? Well, listen to this. Do you exist right now? It's not a trick question. The answer is yes. The answer is yes, you exist. And so guess what? If you exist, why do you exist right now? Back to verse 17. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. You exist in this moment because he is holding you together right now. Think about that. Think of the implications of that truth. If Jesus thinks the world in this moment needs a me or needs a you, then what does it matter what others think? In this very moment, Jesus is actively willing that we are. Think about that. I don't think you'd get it, because if you did, I think you'd be jumping up and shouting. But the creator of the universe, the one who makes everything, has said, I need you here now. And I'm gonna hold you together. Not by some, what science wants to tell us, action that happened back here and the cells all multiplied and now you just carry on till you stop breathing and your heart stops beating. That's not how it works. How it works is this. Every breath you take is Jesus saying to you, I need you here now. I want you here now. You are something to me. You are someone in this time, in this place, and I will hold you together in it. Think about that. And so when you come to that truth, that reality, my question is, what does it matter what anybody else thinks of you? I heard somebody say one time that your view of self is a product of what you think the most important person in your life thinks of you. 
So your view of self is a product of what you think the most important person in your life thinks of you. So can I suggest that if you find yourself questioning if you have value, that maybe it's because you have the wrong most important person in your life? You may not have value to certain other people. You may not. In any given moment, anyone who you think matters to you could look at you and say, you do not matter to me. And if that's the person you're looking at to find your worth and value, that's gonna rock your world. That's gonna undermine your self-perception. But if Jesus is the most important person in your life, then you will see yourself in terms of Ephesians 1. Remember we talked about that a few weeks back? In him, in him I am chosen, holy, blameless, adopted, God's child, favored, beloved, redeemed, forgiven, informed, united, precious, included, useful. I'm his glory, I'm sealed. I'm a reason for others to praise him. I'm accepted, I'm desired, I'm beloved. If Jesus is the most important person in my life in every moment, that's how I'll see myself. And then what you think of me, for better or for worse, doesn't seem to change my identity. It matters because you matter, but it doesn't change my identity, which means this, because you're not, no longer a threat to my identity, I can respond to you when you hurt me with love and kindness and gentleness and forgiveness. But when you shape my identity and you hurt me, I'm not coming at you that way. I will blow you up. And we all do it. When someone hurts us and we have given them the power to shape our identity, we will fight back. We will break that relationship. We will talk bad about them. We will tear them down. We will try to hurt them back. And so do you see once I realize that Jesus is the most important person in my life and how he views me is where my sense of value comes from, you can do anything to me and I will not fight back. And now all of a sudden, statements in the Sermon on the Mount, like don't resist an evil person and turn the other cheek, all of a sudden become possible. All of a sudden they become a reality that we look at in our human strength and go, uh-huh. Turn the other cheek? No. The most godly thing I can do when you slap me on the face is run away. But I can't give you the other cheek. And I even feel like that's an accomplishment because I didn't hit you back. So praise me for running rather than swinging. And that's not what Jesus said. He didn't say, when someone smacks you on the left cheek, run away. He didn't say, if they're gonna hit you a second time, make sure they gotta hit you in the back. There's an expectation of how life will look for us when we make him the most important person in our life that is found in the Sermon on the Mount that says we'll do all these bizarre, odd things that have no bearing in humanity because they're not human, they're divine. Here's the last question. How do I participate with Jesus in resolving this longing in the world? Well, it's pretty simple. And it goes back to our first message in this series. As I see me as God's beloved in Christ, I will start to see you as God's beloved in Christ. As I see me as God's beloved in Christ, I'll start to see you as God's beloved in Christ. Listen to this, Matthew 25, verses 34 through 40. 
Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in, naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you as a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it for one of the least of my brothers or sisters, you did it for me. That's how we participate with Jesus in resolving this longing in the world. I find it interesting in that verse that the righteous had to ask him, when did we do this? Isn't that funny to you? When did we do it? They didn't know. They didn't know. You know why they didn't know? Because when we live that life, it just flows out, man. It's not effort. It's not trying. It's not working. It just flows out. It just flows out. And so Jesus comes and goes, hey, thanks for feeding me. And we go, wait, what? When did that happen? Thanks for giving me something to drink. I never gave you a drink. It just flows out. That's how we participate with Jesus in resolving this longing in the world. We become people who see the least of these who respond to the least of these, who love the least of these as Jesus loves us. I also think it's interesting that he didn't say the people who did those things were him in this story. He said the people who received those things were him. Isn't that interesting? Because we have this model in church that we wanna go out and be Christ to the world. You know what I think most churches need? to let the marginalized, the dismissed, the drug addict, the teen mom who's pregnant, the atheist, the agnostic, the person who upsets us, the people who rob us and talk bad about us and are completely out on the margins of society. I think we need to let them be Jesus to us more than we need to try to be Jesus to the world. That's what these verses say. Jesus equated himself to the prisoner, not to the one visiting the prisoner. Think about that for a minute. It's a little different standard. I go visit people in prison. Why? Because I think I might encounter Jesus. We go feed people at a homeless shelter. Why? Because I think I might encounter Jesus. We're going to give away coats and clothing. Why? Because we think we might encounter Jesus. Big difference in our in scripture and our normal expectation as the Western church of what it looks like to be Jesus. So here's the deal. An identity rooted in how Jesus sees us instead of how anyone else sees us will free us to give ourselves for others instead of trying to find ourselves in others. An identity that's rooted in how Jesus sees us instead of how anyone else sees us, will free us to give ourselves for others instead of trying to find ourselves in others. 
That's a game changer. Total game changer. Because Western culture doesn't operate that way. Western culture says, you are what we think you are. So get on the treadmill, run. And then you'll build something. So I want to put those four questions back up, if you guys don't mind. And, and, and you know, if you, if you want to pull out your phone and take a picture, that's fine. But I want you to think of when you read a verse and it hits you in a way that says, man, this is bringing up some desire in me that I don't know that I should have. Go to these four questions. Sit with the Spirit and say, all right, Lord, what is the longing that's in me that these verses are bringing up? God, you tell me how I avoid and deny this longing. Tell me how I try to walk around it. Reveal to me how Jesus resolves it. And then make it clear to me how I can participate in resolving this longing in the world. Let me pray. Father, we're so grateful that you have shown us a way to live the life that you've invited us into in fullness. And God, we know that it's, it's not through anything we have or anything we do or anything that's in us. It's just a divine power, a, a divine nature that is in us and is working through us and coming to life. And God, I just ask that as we walk out of this space today, you make us the kind of people who understand our identity in you so deeply that we're not looking to anybody else to figure out who we are and that frees us to pour ourselves out for others. And God, I pray that, that we see your son this week in the hungry and in the naked and in the sick and in the imprisoned and in the thirsty. And Father, just create in us hearts that will walk through this community, that will walk through Sarnia, will walk through our normal lives and look for you in those places and respond to you in those people. And Father, keep us mindful that we know who we are in you and we don't need anybody else to tell us who we are. Keep us mindful that we're not okay, but it's okay because we're yours. And you're doing a work in us and everything that's not okay in us is slowly being transformed and burned away and we're becoming well and we're growing in your son. And that because we're in him, there is a glory that awaits us that we can't even fathom right now, but we will be people of patience and look for that. And Father, I know there's people in this room who at some point this week are gonna question, why are they even here? And Father, I pray that you draw them back to Colossians 1.17 and remind them that they are here because your son wills them into existence in this moment and let every breath be a reminder of that for us in those times where we just feel like we're, we're insignificant, where we're irrelevant, that we have no purpose. But let us know that every breath we draw is because your son is willing us into existence in this very present moment. As our God, go before us, invite us into the work you're doing, and let us stand firmly in our identity in Christ, not in the perception of others. In Jesus' name, amen.